Welcome to episode 94 of Running Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Hadfield, and this week I have the pleasure of chatting with the fastest Australian ever to run the 10K, two-time Olympian Pat Tiernan. And now Pat is stuck in uh, Brisbane Quarantine Hotel after returning from the Tokyo Olympics, where he ran an incredible race really in the 10K, uh, mixing it with the pack for 24 of 25 laps and then as you probably all saw, having a, a very, very difficult final lap where he uh, stump, stumbled along to the finish line, but certainly put himself in the mix. Uh, very impressive effort from, from Pat. Uh, it was certainly some brutal conditions, uh, and so we had a good chat about how that all panned out and his preparation for, for that race. Uh, Pat spends most of his time in Oregon these days with the Oregon Track Club, but he's come back to Australia to uh, you know, sort out a few things and was good enough to give us his time while in quarantine. So really appreciative of uh, such an amazing athlete chatting with The Wolf and myself. Uh, before we get on to that, I'd like to thank our partners, Fractel Performance Headwear, Goo Energy, Runala, Basecamp Altitude, Gaimi Allied Health Centre, Precision Hydration, Raid Light, Canola Beer Company and Rafferty's Coastal Run. So without further ado, I'll get uh, Wolf into the room and we'll chat with Pat Tien and enjoy. Okay, thanks for your time, Pat. Um, yeah, of course. Mate, originally from Toowoomba, what's your, uh, what are your movements since then? Talk us through it. Yeah, so we, um, my parents were both uh, both teachers in, in sort of outback Queensland um, and then they had us and moved to Toowoomba in 98, I believe. Um, and then, yes, yeah, so I was there up until about 2011 and then took a year, um, took a year in Brisbane, did a, did a year of studying at um, the University of Queensland there and um, continued my running under under Pac Hesse for a year there, which was which was a great experience for me. And then ultimately got a um, got a scholarship off to go over to the US and run for run for a university over there and get a get a degree at the same time. So um, yeah, that was at the start of 2013. Had a really good experience at Villanova. Um, you know, loved the setup, loved the coach I was with there and actually stayed with him for for another three and a half years after graduating. Um, so that brought me all the way through to August of last year. And then, um, you know, we kind of both came to the decision that that, that had, my time in Philly had kind of reached its, um, reached its limit um, and that I needed to join a training group if I wanted to keep going with this. And so that's ultimately what led, uh, led me out to Eugene, Oregon, where I joined the Oregon Track Club being coached by Mark Rowland. Unreal. Can I uh, take take a quick step back and uh, yeah, able to fill the listeners in on how that I guess that college entry stuff works out for you? Have you been scouted by Villanova, or do you have to put some applications in over there? How did it How did it work? Yeah, so I was very fortunate. Our um, the assistant coach at the time was Adrian Blinker, who was a um, Olympic athlete for New Zealand in the five k. So he was kind of keeping tabs on all the results that were that were happening down in in the southern hemisphere and um you know it just so happened that 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 was the year that i um won back-to-back cross titles in my age group and and also was able to pick up the 15 and 5k under 20 titles so um 
really just all, all good timing for me in that regard. So, um, yeah, he, he sent me an email um, probably towards the end of uh, 2012. Um, and for me at the time, it was like I wasn't actually, I wasn't doing very well at, at uni over a year and kind of needed to, definitely needed to have a change up um, in my lifestyle. So that was kind of a great opportunity for me to, to go and do that. And so I, we kind of, uh, fast track that process and had it all done in a couple of months and I was I was over at Villanova in January of, of 2013 but it was um, definitely a quicker process than usual I think most people will have the option to go and visit colleges that that send them an offer or that they're interested in um, whereas for me it was kind of just no let's let's just pack the bags and go I, I think it's I think it's something that'll that'll work out for me if I make the most of it um and yeah, that was that was the case for me there. Unreal. And so, 2016, first at NCAA cross country. For the people in Australia, just how big a deal is winning this race? Um, yeah, it, it is a big deal. I think it's um, you know it's definitely not a a world cross or a junior world cross standard, but it's it's kind of a stepping stone to those races. Um, you know, I think that that race really prepared me well for for um, World Open Cross, which was a few months later in 2017. So, it's a it's a really big, um, yeah, it is it is a big big result. I would say it's it's um, as close as you'll get to to an Open Championship without actually having having it be that that sort of situation. Um, but it's also just that it's the whole. Um, mental process throughout the year like you have to qualify for this race by finishing you know in a in a top amount in other races throughout the year um when you're at a college you have to you know you have to run for them in races leading up to it it's not like you can necessarily just you know just be like all right i'm just going to run this one race at the start of the year and then get ready for nationals it's like no you have to do your conference meet you have to do your regional meet to get there and then um the national meet is, is kind of the last race on the radar. So, um, yeah, there's a few steps to go through. A lot of, you know, a lot of college athletes don't really even make it to that meet. Um, I know my brother was over at Wake Forest and, you know, he was he's a good athlete and it, it took him a couple of years to, to get there himself. So, um, you know, it's, it's something that there's only a couple of national championships on the radar each year. So to have the one where this is, you know, this is the one race, there's not different events in cross country. There's nothing like that. It's everyone toes the line. It's 250 guys that toe the line for that race and they're wow. all lined for that, that win um, over 10 kilometres. So, you know, that was really special to me, especially coming second the year before and, and falling just short of, of that goal. Um, it was really, really great to end my career on that note and trying to tie everything in a bow there. Unreal, mate. Such a great result. I just want to, I guess, compare that cross-country meet to the usual three men and a dog we see watching the cross-country racing over in Australia. How, how big is that event? Mate, it's insane. I, I remember the first time I ran at a uh, regional meet, which is that's basically the meet that you run at to qualify for the, for the national championship. Um, and it was my first year at Villanova and I was running in that meet. And I remember getting to about... 1500 meters in a mile into the race and you're just coming up to this straight where there were easily like 
400, 500 people on each side of, of the course. And uh, someone sent me this photo after the race, but it's just me grinning from ear to ear just because <laughs> it was such an awesome experience. Like, yeah, like it's a cross-country race, yeah. you know. <laughs> like in Australia, you used to like, yeah, you might have, you know, the the Queensland team managers and your parents and your mates' parents out there cheering yeah. you on, but like, or like people who were just in the running community, whereas this was like, because going to college is such a big deal for kids and being on a college team is such a big deal. Um, everyone shows up, like friends, family, just fans of the sport, like they're all there. And so, and that was the regional meet. So then when it gets to the national meet, um, it's insane. Like there's not a second on that course in, in uh, Indiana where you're by yourself. Like it's, it's set up in a, in a circular sort of way so that it's spectator friendly, but there's so many people that come out for it and they're running back and forth all over the place. Just thousands of people out there for a cross country meet. <laughs> and it's awesome. It's awesome. You're coming down the home straight and there's a big, like, you know, a big banner, banister thing over the top there's a finishing line tape there's people lining up the finishing straight um it's an awesome experience and honestly it's a little overwhelming the first time the first couple of times you do it like it, i think that's part of it that's kind of underrated is actually you know being aware of what what you're signing up for when you go there um but yes, I know it's it's an awesome experience. I, I mean, anyone who asks me about the college system and like whether it's the right move for them or not, my response is always, if you want to try it out, go and give it a year. Like it's just regardless of like if it works out, you stay there. If it doesn't, you know, you've had a year there and you can come back and there's no issue. But I guarantee it'll be an experience you'll never have again. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, we're much too slow to ever be there. But uh, in in 2018, you went to the Com Games, and uh, yep. you were running in the 10,000 meter. You've got a DQ. What can you talk us through? What happened? Yeah. So I um I basically the DQ uh, short story is I I'd stepped inside of the track a couple of times. Um, but the reasoning for that was basically because I popped with a long way to go in the race. Um, and so the last K or so, I was very disoriented. And, yeah, I, I remember stepping on the track a couple of times, but it was probably a few <laughs> few more times I stepped on the inside. Um, so, yeah, so to, to be honest, they kind of did me a favour by putting a DQ next to my name and not the actual result. Um, but, yeah, but that, that was kind of a, a tough one to swallow. I mean, having a, you know, being from Toowoomba and southeast Queensland area, having having a home championship on the Gold Coast. Um, you know, we just talked about how rare it is to have have fans at, at track and field or cross-country meets in general. And this was an instance where not only was it a packed stadium, um, it was a stadium where there was, like, my entire family and, and friend base was there. Um, so, you know, that, that was definitely a tough one to swallow, being you know, getting ready for that and viewing it as this this big thing all year and then and then having having a result like that was was pretty gut wrenching. But um no, ultimately I think it was um 
you know, there are a lot of things going on with Ben, not not only running-wise, but just in my personal life. So it was, it was a matter of where I just had to step away and, and sort those things out and, and get back on the straight and narrow with it. And you certainly did get back on the straight and narrow. I've got um, listen a question come in from fellow US college runner from Australia, Ollie Hall. He wants to know who would win a fight between a badger and a wildcat. Ollie, come on, mate. That's not even a question. <laughs> not even a question. Wildcat. Through and, through. Uh, and question two from Ollie. Uh, what session does Villanova have to compare to the fabled Michigan steamer? <laughs> Uh, a Villanova staple. Um, I think one of our go-to sessions uh, was always, always a progression run, and we structured it in such a way where it was we do sort of um, do it in fifteen-minute segments. So you'd have fifteen minutes at sort of a lighter, not not an easy run, but definitely not you're not in tempo by any means um and then each 15 minutes you would pick up the pace until ultimately by the end of it you're up in tempo threshold range um and that was that was a staple for us all throughout our base period um you know we'd be doing that when we came back to to uni in august and we'd still be doing it when we were preparing for um for nationals by the end of by the end of november um and, you know, we'd come back around to that in track season if we needed to work on that that sort of base. But that that's definitely our – I would say that was our staple session. We we Marcus kind of mixes things up a bit. He doesn't really rely necessarily on, on um, you know, a go-to session or anything like that. He's a very, very indiv- – indiv- wow, struggling with that word today. Individualised <laughs> coach. <laughs> um, he, yeah, he, he sort of looks at everyone and, and designates a session that's based off of what they're needing at the time. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say there was a, a staple session outside of that. No worries. I've actually got a, uh, a listener question from Marcus, and the same question came in from another fellow called the Leprechaun, and they both want to know, would you consider representing Ireland at the next Olympics? <laughs> Oh no! Sorry, fellas. No. Um, yeah, I'm Aussie. Aussie through and through. Won't be. Won't be changing. Changing answers. Good answer. Mate, speaking of Ollie, did you have any difficulties with qualifying for the Aussie team this year while training and competing in the US? I know he had his dramas. Um, more so, I just you know I, they didn't select the team until end of uh, end of June, so I was trying to like. You know, you're not really sure what else you can do. I mean, I ran the time um, for the five in, I think it was July of 2019, and then the time for the 10 in in December of 2020. Um, so, yeah, at that point, I kind of done everything that I could. Um, but, you know, there's, I think that's, you know, it's an issue with our selection policy, but it's also, it's a hard one to to really get right um, just because, you know, our seasons are completely opposite and, you know, people want to go to Europe and race in the lead up to a championship. So there's not many people that are trying to come back to Australia. Um, you know, if they had a, if they had a trial date in June, which is when most countries do, um, I think it'd be, you know, you probably wouldn't have too many people that would want to come back for that um, or who would come back for that and then have good results at a championship a month later after doing that whole 
all around the world travel. Um, so it's definitely a tough system and it def- it makes it harder when you're based in the US. But um, no, for me, it was kind of just like I'd, I'd been through that process before of, you know, doing everything that I could in that regard. And, and at that point, you just kind of have to sit tight and rely on, rely on your own results that season and continue racing and training because if you're going to be selected. Um, so, yeah, I know, I know it was, I mean, because I think this was, was this Ollie's first open team. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, I, I mean, I remember Rio, I was sort of jumping, felt like I was jumping through hoops as well to, to get everything sorted out. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's something where you kind of, you know, you come to expect that sort of process and, and you almost just have to put it in the back of your head and think, all right, I just got to, you know, continue doing what I got to do as if I'm racing at the major championship. Um, and ultimately, whatever your best preparation for that is will will be your best ticket onto that team as far as the selectors are concerned. Yep. Do what you can do. Perfect. Exactly. Should we chat about um, famous 10K race, Tokyo? Definitely become a household name if you weren't already after uh, Tokyo 10K, mate. Can you um, talk our listeners through the measures you took pre-race in order to stay cool out there? Yeah, so we... Um, we experimented a little bit with um, uh, cold immersion or submersion before before races. Um, so you know we took a took a cold bath before leaving for the track, um, and then had an ice vest on while doing you know drills and and all sort of warm ups and whatnot. Um, and this had been something that had that we'd trialed um, in Houston. A little before it i think and you know we found houston to be a very similar climate to, to tokyo um and you know we trialed it there and it had, it had worked pretty well um as far as me being able to do my sessions in in pretty in a pretty comfortable format so um yeah so we we took those measures and, and ultimately you know it, it came down to that wasn't quite enough um which is frustrating because you like this is definitely the most most preparation I've done as far as looking into you know humidity and heat training before the championship and trialing a bunch of different cooling methods to see what works well and what doesn't um but yeah so I think you know looking at it in hindsight we probably didn't take into account the fact that just generally I'm I'm a bigger body out there um you know I've definitely got a few kilos on the rest of the rest of the field and definitely definitely a um, fair bit taller than them so you know probably might take a bit more um bit more for me to stay at a, a cooler core temperature for a longer period of time there um but yeah so you know we we did take take measures and we'd, we'd taken that into account and and whatnot just just must have missed a missed a calculation somewhere when we were when we were doing that preparation trial and error things it's difficult to get it right every time did you yeah. um did you did you spend some time acclimatizing like did you spend a couple of weeks there or yeah so basically since um i'd say since early or late may um i'd been doing two or three runs in a in a uh, heat chamber in, at the university of oregon mm-hmm. um and we've been, you know, we've been running in there at sort of, you know, north of 42, 43 degrees Celsius 
um, and you know, keeping it really under. You know, it wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't anything super intense, but it was more so an effort there to just try and get um, get your body used to that sort of stuff. Um, and then a week before I left for Tokyo, we went to uh, Houston in Texas and basically did a little, you know, short training camp there to to get get fully acclimatized to it. Um, and then, you know, and then I got into Tokyo about a week before, um, a week before race day. So I had two full weeks in, in that sort of, that climate before, before I raced, um, and had been doing the, the heat chamber work for a few months before that. So yeah, we definitely, um, you know, definitely did a lot of work. It was the most work I've ever done as far as trying to acclimatize to, to heat and humidity, um, and yeah, we did a lot of work in that regard. And I don't think that was um, necessarily a huge problem. I think, like I said before, I think we just just slightly missed the ball with with how much we needed to to cool my body temperature down before the race. Mm. What about uh, during those heat sessions you're talking about? Obviously, there's a fine line between acclimatization and overcooking an athlete. How are you feeling yeah. during these sessions? Yeah, fine. I mean, I think. I, we weren't doing any any real sessions i would say in those chambers so it was more so just just easy running because um, like you said it, it's very easy to overdo it um and sort of tire yourself out before you even get to the day so we were, we were very aware of that and it was more so about spending time um in that sort of climate rather than working working at a high performance level while in there so um, yeah, no, we were definitely on the on the more cautious side of, of undercooking, I would say. Um, and then going into Houston, that was that was kind of our week where we were like, all right, let's let's put you out there and try and get you, you know, in a little bit more of an extreme environment. There, we were still doing, you know, sessions. We were starting. I think the earliest we started the session out there was seven pm. Um, so we were still you know still being on the more cautious side of it we weren't you know i'm not going out and doing eight by k at one o'clock um and that's just that's just death wish there um but yeah so we were, we were definitely taking a lot of those things into account and my coach is you know i one of the reasons i came out and joined him was because i know he's he's very aware of those sort of things and he's not you know he's going to push push the boundaries of things but he's also not going to be you know, he's going to be aware of what what things are and, and approach them in a in a safe manner. So, um, or an educated manner, I should say. So, um, yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think we we ticked a lot of those boxes and, and did really well with that prep. I just think, um, yeah, I just think I missed missed the mark with a couple of things when it came to race day. Mate, you um you ran your fifteen hundred meter PB in May earlier this year. Uh, was improving your short distance like a specific priority, or did that just come from being generally bloody fit at the time? Um, yeah, I mean that's definitely an area that I, I know I need to work on. Um, because you know it's one thing. I feel like there's the common saying is like speed's no good if you're not there um to use it but for me it was always i was there and then didn't have any speed so <laughs> um so yeah so it's it's definitely an area that i've been been working on i think i've come a long way um in the last in the last 12 months with that um 
you know, I'd, I'd ran, yeah, ran that PB in, in the 15 and um, I ran, to be honest, I ran my best 5K ever this year. I, I mean, I closed a 13, 25K in a 2.27 last K, I think, which is, you know, that's the best I've ever closed in my life as far as those, those sort of distances are concerned. So, um, yeah, no, it was definitely an area that we really worked well on and I think we'd found a good balance with, um, you know, maintaining my aerobic base with it and, and being able to, you know, crank crank up those speed sessions a bit more. Because, um, yeah, because realistically, if you want to compete with these drives in the 10, um, you know, you've got to be able to run closer to 335 um, for the 15. You've got to be getting a sub-13-minute 5K in. Um, it's a, you, like you need that sort of speed in order to in order to close with them because realistically they could close their last mile in 359 mm-hmm. you know and that's that's something that you want you want that pace you want to be able to run a 359 mile pretty you know i wouldn't say comfortably but you want to be able to do it without without it seeming like a huge task um so yeah so realistically in in all distances now you've got to be looking two distances below and thinking all right what's the requirement there and can i can i tick that box as well as while maintaining the other boxes throughout so um you know that's something that you know we sat down at the start of the year last year and and sort of mulled that over and definitely something we'll be doing again uh when i get back to the u.s it all sounds so easy (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know writing it down on paper it's like three boxes all right you're good <laughs> um, but yeah there's i feel like those are those are three boxes that are a small part of, of the bigger picture so um yeah but um but no that's that's definitely been an area we've been we've been working on and i've been i've been pretty happy with how i've been progressing with that Unreal. mate um breaking the aussie 10k record in the last year 27 22 were you in the same shape, completing the same sort of workouts prior to the games, or did you feel fitter coming into Tokyo? Um, I feel like I, I definitely felt like I was in better shape. Um, you know, Mark's Mark has has a uh, sort of unique approach in the sense that we rarely do the same session twice, um, so he'll kind of mix it up, and I think that it's more so so we don't compare ourselves to, to where we were in a certain situation, um, which is good. But, um, yeah, no, I was, you know, I felt really great. I mean, this is, you know, a lot of people have come up to me after the race and said, this is the fittest I've ever seen you at a, at a championship. Um, and, I mean, I think obviously the result for me, I don't think that's going to give any sort of justice to the sort of shape I was in. Um but yeah, no, I was definitely feeling confident. I felt like I was in in really good nick and and progressing well. Um, I think there's definitely still room for me to grow in that regard, and and I'll you know I'll show that in, in the year to come. But um, yeah, no, I was really happy with the with the sort of shape I was in and and the progress we've made. Um, not only since moving out to the group, but since that race in December. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, as far as that that when I was really, really confident and happy with where, where we were at. Unreal. Mate, I've got a lot, of, a lot of the listeners asking this similar question. They want to know about the feeling before you started to stumble and when did you know? What's the conversation in your head like to turn off your brain to the extent where you actually your body takes over and uh, starts to give way? 
Yeah, I would say the um, the best way for me to describe it was the second last lap felt like my last lap. Like it felt when I was running down the back straight there, it felt like when you're coming down the back straight and trying to hang on for a sprint finish. Um, so, you know, I, I think around that point with 700, 600 to go, I knew it was in my head, I was like, this is really hard. Um, I didn't think it would go the way that it did, but I was in my head, I was like, all right, this is going to be a tough last 600 and you just got to get through it. Um, but yeah, it probably wasn't until about 2.50 to go when I felt myself starting to lean forward a little bit and I couldn't adjust it that I knew I was in strife. Um, and then, yeah, then the last, uh, it slowly, slowly got worse physically and, uh, and mentally from that point on. Um, you know, I think it was, yeah, it all, it all hit very suddenly. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it, and the hard thing is, is, is recognizing exactly when it was because, you know, in your head, things are hard in a 10k, but you're also, you've got two laps to go in the Olympic 10k final and you're in the lead group. Like things are meant to be fucking hard, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's not going to be easy and you, and you prepare yourself for that. Um, when you come into it, you know, this is going to be the hardest effort that you've ever put in. Um, and so, yeah, so I think for me, it was more just, I just kept convincing myself that like, it's really hard, but that's okay. Like that's where you're at. And this is like, this is the arena you're on and, and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I, I was just convincing myself that it was okay. It was okay. It was okay. And then all of a sudden I was, face down on the track and I was like oh, okay that's not okay <laughs> that's not that's not where I envision it's going um so yeah so it, it was it was a pretty sudden um pretty sudden realization physically I think if I look back on it I could have recognized it with probably about 600 meters to go and, and sort of dialed it back a bit and, and run a more controlled um controlled effort for that last 600 but um you know i just in my head it was it was do or die um you know, i nearly got to that point so I wonder <laughs> we didn't get there um but uh yeah so that's you know and that's another thing that i'm, I'm sort of coming away from this and and looking at working on is is trying to you know more recognize recognize those sort of sensations and you know, work on work on that moving forward. A lot of uh, a lot of people watching um, saw your fall before before the line, say fifty meters before the finish. But you, it actually that was your second fall, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, that was my third fall. Third. So I um I fell with about one hundred and eighty meters to go, um, and got back up and fell again about two meters later. Um, <sighs> okay. So that was kind of. You know, it was it was almost that second fall that made it click in my head that I needed, you know, that it wasn't going to be just like, uh, okay, just get up and keep running. Like the second fall was then like, uh, okay, get up and make it. Like just get to the finish. Um, and, yeah, and I think the fact that it was still getting worse in that last 150, even though I in my head I was – trying to jogging it in at that point or you know it was still physically very hard but 
and mentally I was saying to myself, just, you know, keep yourself under wraps and make sure you can get there. Um, but yeah, so that, that fall down the home straight, yeah, that was, that was the third time I hit the deck. Um, and that was just, that, that was just crushing that one. Um, cause yeah, cause then, you know, I knew it, I knew it wasn't pretty. It was a lot less pretty than I thought it was when looking back on it. Um, it felt about it felt about as good as it looked, but in my head, I thought I still had a little bit of little bit of dignity about me coming across that line. But I was I was looking back on it a couple of times, and I thought, "Gee, I've seen blokes walk out of a bar looking better than that." Um, so it was, um, yeah, definitely, you know, definitely a tough thing to to sort of pick yourself up and keep going when when you know at that point you're not you're not finishing well and you're not you know this isn't going to be something that you know I'll I'll be able to look back on this race and think fondly of the first nine and a half k um but you know in that moment you know that like looking back on that last 200 100 meters that's not something that I'm ever going to look back on and be like you know, ever going to think necessarily positively of, um, you know, I know there's, I know it's been seen as like, I uh, showed true grit and courage to get up and keep going. Um, but you know, as, as an athlete and knowing what my goals and ambitions were going into that, that's just something that, you know, it, it won't click in that regard and that's okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just something, it's a tough, tough pill to swallow. Um, and it was especially tough while doing it. Mate, there's certainly no loss of dignity and obviously everyone's extremely proud of your efforts. And also, most people never actually get to find out how far they can push themselves. The, the idea of self-preservation usually kicks in well before that point. Is, is there a positive to take that you can push yourself past that limit? Um, I think a positive to take is that when I'm, you know, when my body is physically ready for that, uh, for that effort that I want, that I want to get out of it, there's going to be an instance where, you know, that'll kick in for the last 200 to 100 meters of a race. That mentality, and it's going to be a positive result for me. It's going to result in you know running that little bit quicker or getting that little extra out of myself rather than that sort of result. And that's, you know, that's kind of what I'm working with at the moment is trying to trying to identify those things and not necessarily see that mindset as, as a bad thing, but more so just, you know, recognizing when, when it's beneficial and when it's not. Um, Cause you know, there, uh, there will be an instance where I'm in shape to stay with that group for the entire race. And I'll be there with 200 meters to go and hundred meters to go. And, you know, that's when that mindset is going to kick in and I'll get an extra, you know, I might get an extra meter on them or something like that just through that. So that's that's kind of what I'm taking away from it is that, you know, there's there's been a lot of instances for me where that mindset has not worked um, and has resulted in, in something like that. But there's going to be a day where I put myself up there, I'm in shape to do it and it's going to pay it off. So, um, yeah, it's just like I said, it's just a matter of you now recognizing when when those moments are, and um, you know, keeping keeping a lid on it when it's if it's going south a little earlier than anticipated. Mm. 
look forward to watching that moment, mate. There's um there's no doubt you'll be uh, on the line in, in Paris for the ten thousand meter. But um, looking forward to twenty twenty eight in LA, would you? Are we thinking too far forward? Seeing you lining up for a marathon? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's you know it's a long way away, and it's something that I probably won't think about for a while. Um, but I think that's that's definitely a realistic. Yeah outlook if i'm if i'm going to be towing a line in la it'll be in the marathon um you know i think at that point it's just for me it's you know yes there's there's doing events that you love and and that you want to do well in but there's also doing events that you know that you will do well in or that is realistically your best shot and i think you know looking at my looking at a 33 34 year old version of myself um I think the marathon will be will be the most competitive event for me at that time. So, um, yeah, I would say if, if 2028 is, is something that happens for me, it, it will probably be in the marathon. Um, you know, that's, that's a future for me. I think I, you know, I think I have a lot to give in the 10. Um, you know, I've run well in it, but I feel like I, I haven't got it right yet, which is for me exciting. Um, you know, the fact that I've had some good ones, but it still hasn't fully clicked to me shows that there's, you know, a lot of potential and a lot of room for growth there. So, um, yeah, at this point in time, I think I'd love to love to be able to line up in Paris in the 10 um, and, you know, put a put an honest effort out there and then be able to compete up the top. Um, but, yeah, I think there's there's marathons in, in the future if, if running is something that I continue to pursue after after those Olympics. Unreal. I've got a uh, listener question, celebrity, actually. It's coming from Deke. He wants to know, how much testing did you do in the lead-up to Tokyo on the relative merit of running with a beard rather than a tash? Do you think switching to the tash might help improve your heat disbursement for future races? Um, I think uh, the tash might have had performance-enhancing abilities in the, uh, in the 80s. Um, <laughs> You know, I think I think the beards the beards served me well over over the last few years. I think um, you know maybe maybe a mustache would would help my um, running performance, but I think it would it would also result in me being a uh, a very lonely and and fiancéless person. So we'll, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll stick to the I'll stick to the beard and try and try and figure out the other the other the other issues first before going going to that extreme <laughs> nice one i've, I've got a, uh, a message that's come in as opposed to a, a listener question and it's, it's actually from skoma and uh scotty said i'd like to offer you the keys to the city of toowoomba and then he said please be patient it may take 12 months to roll out <laughs> Mate. i would love that love love toowoomba it's a uh, phenomenal town. They, they treated me really well, um, and and you know always always get behind me at major championships. So a town I'm very proud to be from. Unreal. I got a question coming from Darren Elchin. You also know at, at the Tokyo Olympics, I saw a huge change in the Aussie middle distance runners. They no longer seem content with finishing amongst the pack. They appear to attack, attack races a lot more. What do you attribute this change to? Um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a shift. I think we've, especially in the middle distance, you know, 815, we had a phenomenal showing um, 
in Tokyo this year and it was great to see, you know, we had two two fellas, two two men and women in, in the finals of the 15. Um, Pete had a great result in, in the men's eight and I think, you know, as far as other results go, I think Katrina and, and Jai were both very unlucky not to not to make it out of their respective heats and, and go on to go on to semis and finals there. So um, I think there's been, I think this has been a long time coming. I think we've had, you know, we've had one or two very good middle distance athletes um, each year for a long time. And I think it's just been a matter of, you know, ultimately getting, getting all of that together at the, at the same time, you know, we had Ryan and, um, Jeff dominating the, the 15 um, for such a long time. Um, and then, you know, I think we had a really strong group of young athletes coming through over, over the last four or five years um, who have been competing really well in, in European meets um, and just haven't been able to get it, get it quite right for, for major championships. But, you know, I think that's, that's been something that's been recognised. Um, more so than just focusing on running fast and, and all of that is that now our athletes are saying, all right, like we can do both. You know, we can we can realistically run well throughout the regular season, but the main goal is to get to the Olympics or the World Champs or Com Games and be in the best possible shape we can to compete at that at that top level. Um, and you know, a lot of people are making adjustments to be able to do that. So um, no, it's been amazing. I mean seeing you know seeing Stewie doing what he's doing um Ollie's been been amazing to watch Jai's been unreal I mean the fact that we had a guy who ran 334 twice in the 15 who didn't make the team this year I mean Matt Ramsden was so unlucky not to make that team any other year he makes it um so yeah so that's you know that's been amazing and then you've got the women's 15 where we've got Lyndon and Jess constantly breaking each other's national records and Katrina running 158 and the 800 Pete jogging across the line running 144 um, and you know three guys who are running close to that Aussie record so it's just been amazing I feel like the performances have just been increasing throughout the year and it's just pushing everyone everyone to bigger and better things um, you know making an Australian team is hard now it's hard it's a hard thing to do and, and people are training you know, it's an achievement now to, to really make that team rather than just running a time. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's what makes people, when they get out there, they think, all right, I really, you know, I've worked hard for this. Um, this has been, this hasn't been an easy team to make. So now when I get out there, I'm going to make the most of it. Yeah. And speaking of that, I guess that tight-knit group, how much interaction do you guys have while you're over in Tokyo? Are you discussing race strategy with each other pre-race? Um, I'm, to be honest, I'm not too sure. I mean, I was, I was the only one in the 10, so, um, I wasn't really too much a part of that, but I, I don't necessarily think so. I think it's, you know, as much as we want to have, you know, all three of our athletes in the final, um, at the same time that, you know, it isn't a team sport, um, as much as we'd, we'd love it to be, there's, there's no... You know, there's no benefit for having three Aussies finish fifth, sixth, and seventh in a final. Um, 
you know, realistically the end goal is to have to have at least one person on that podium. And so I think everyone, you know, everyone goes into it with their own race strategies. And, um, you know, I don't think, I don't know what the tactics are in middle distance races as far as doing heats and finals and, and whatnot. But, you know, obviously we've seen, um, we've seen the East Africans in, like apply team tactics to races like the five and the 10 um, for a number of years now and, and they, they have the depth to be able to do that. But, um, you know, I think as far as we're concerned for right now, our biggest priority is just getting, you know, just getting bodies up there and competing well. And, and we've got to that point now where we're doing well. So, um, you know, I don't think there's necessarily as, as many team tactics going into it. Um, at the moment, I think everyone's, you know, everyone's going in there and they've got a race plan for themselves to, to get into the semi-final and ultimately get on the podium. Mm. I guess on that topic of team tactics and what have you, how do you find the transition from something like college racing with Villanova to then training and competing essentially on your own at, at Oregon? What's the difference in motivation for you? Um, I, I guess I was pretty fortunate um, in the sense that I didn't, we didn't really have too many people in my events. Um, you know, we had the team concept for, for cross country throughout the year which was an awesome thing to be a part of but when it came to track it's kind of always been that way for me um you know the five and ten is has been and i mean villanova is a middle distance program for the most part um you know very 1500 focus um and you know they do well at that so that's that's something that they've they've sort of stuck to but yeah the five was kind of a you know we had a couple of guys uh doing it but as far as when it got to you know got to regionals and nationals it was it was a bit more of a lonely event um in that regard which for me has just always been the case i mean coming from coming from toowoomba um you know we didn't have we had we had good athletes but it was still kind of that vibe where you got to i was one of the only guys from from um, our town who was making it to national meets and, and stuff like that. So it was always a bit um, a bit of that for me and, and that's something that I've, you know, kind of accepted and been able to work well with. But, um, no, I've, I've definitely benefited from being a part of a, a group environment being out in Oregon now. Um, we have, you know, I have a couple of training partners who do do the same event as me, which has been fantastic. So... That's been that's been something that's been really beneficial as far as um, a training standpoint goes, and, and definitely something that I'll make to make the most of going forward. Unreal. And uh, commentators at the Olympics often make a big deal about it being your first games and gaining experience, etc. Do, do you truly learn from that initial Olympic experience, or are all big races just kind of the same? Uh, no, I think that's very true for the Olympics. I think. Um, the, the biggest difference between the Olympics and a world championship or any other major track and field championship is that you're not the only sport there. Um, so it can be very overwhelming when you first arrive in, and it's more so the village rather than the, the event itself. Um, you know, you get in there and you're seeing, you're seeing like men and women that you've idolized for years who are staying in this same area as you 
and it's so hard to put yourself on the same level as them. Um, and that's kind of the, the thing that's, that is really, you know, hard to, hard to process in your first Olympic games is, is getting there. And, you know, for me, I'm trying to think of who that experience was for me. Um, you know, getting in there and seeing someone like, you know, say you see Kevin Durant, like one of the best basketball players in the world, and he's eating a table across from you. And, and you're meant to be able to sit there, a guy who you've seen on TV every week for the last however long, six, seven years, playing at the epitome of his sport. And you're meant to sit there and think, oh, yeah, I'm on the same level as him. Like we're competing at the same the same event and doing the same thing here. Like no, like the first thing you want to do when you see Kevin Durant for the first time is go over and be like, "Hey man, can I get a photo?" <laughs> like I want to I want to remember this. And it's like there's there's a there's a way you can do that without it being um, you know without it compromising while you're there, but it's something that you have to understand before you go and do it. And when it's your first Olympics, it's very hard, very hard to process that. And I fell victim to that hard in 2016. Like I remember getting on the start line and the whistle blew to go up to the, to the line. And it was just like a light bulb went off. Like, oh shit, I have to race. <laughs> like, like, geez, I have, to, I have to run a 5k here and try and make this final. And it's, a, it's a, like at that point, you're like, like looking back on it, you're like, there was no chance I'm making that final if that light bulb was just going off there. Um, like you can be as physically fit as you can be. You can have prepared all of that well, but unless you're prepared for what what the village and the, and the experience itself will present to you, it's, you know, there's no way you're going to be be in the right space to to do the best that you can in your event so that's i think that's the biggest thing when people say like experience is huge at the olympics is just being able to wrap your head around the idea of it um and what comes with that and just being able to put it aside and be like it's just any other race you know it's just another day i got to go about my preparation the exact same way that's what they're doing Kevin Durant's not looking over at anyone else being like, oh, I've got to go get a picture with him. I've got to do that. He's being like, you know, I've got a basketball game to play in this afternoon. So it's just like any other day for me. Um, and that's that's kind of what you have to have to try and treat it as. Do you think, sorry, second time around, Tokyo being much more isolated in the village, that, that was a lot easier to process, that... Kevin Durant probably wasn't in the uh, dining hall because they were, they were isolating from each other. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there were still definitely still big names in there, but there just wasn't as much of the um, as much of the fanfare surrounding them. Uh, you know, and the, you know, I think not having fans in there was you know it was um, disappointing in the sense of an atmosphere, but I think it really really sort of brought people into balance as far as as being able to perform as best as they could um because yeah it's not it's not as hyped up 
as as you're probably making it in your head to be. So when you get out there and you realize what's happening, you can you can actually calm yourself down and be like, all right, this is like this. Is okay, I've done this before. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that that was definitely um, definitely a factor, and I think a lot of a lot of people whose first experience this was, um, you know, I think it was definitely a more um more realistic thing to be able to compete as as best as as they were hoping to mm. um now i guess the other side of that is does that prepare them well for a paris olympics where everything's you know presumably everything's back open and it's and it's a full-on thing so um you know that's that's another thing to sort of consider is whether coming into that one whether that might actually be a, a first olympics type of experience um but you know that's I'm sure that's something that everyone's everyone's aware of and will be preparing preparing for adequately going into it. Nice one. Hey, um, I just crossed to Sean to have a quick chat about the Coros watch. Sean, how are you? Great, Matt. How are you? I'm very well. We're talking about the Coros Pace Two. Chorus Pace 2 GPS watch, yes, that you've recently uh, been uh, testing. Um, how have you found it? Mate, I really like it. I prefer it much more than my Garmin. Good to hear. Yeah, well, Chorus is a brand that has recently, I uh, haven't been in the market all that long with GPS watches. They're an American company. They're an American sports technology company that released its first GPS watch in 2018, which was the Pace. Um, obviously now, a few years later, they've released a few more into their market and um, in styles, but you've got the Pace 2, which has evolved. And the biggest thing with this brand that we'll find is growing and making it very popular is the battery life. Um, I think that's, that's it's just so much more higher than any other brand that we've been we've sold in the past um for example your pace 2 has a gps you know battery life of 30 hours on full gps yeah which um which is really really you know it's it's excellent um when you're doing long runs um you know you've got that confidence that you know you're going to have your whole workout and run uh yeah, recorded and accurate. Yeah, the, well, the most convenient thing is only having to charge it once a week. So, and that's what we're finding: the charge, the, the pace too. It's got, I think, twenty days um, of non of regular use, and as we said before, thirty hours in full GPS mode. So you, you're re- very rarely charging it, um, and that's that's what users are finding. They're just they're just loving it. I think they're top of the range Vertex. Um, it's got 60 hours of full with GPS full on, um, which is, yes, yeah, unbelievable. It. Yeah, that's great. So uh, how much, if, if people are interested in purchasing, how much are they? Yours, the Pace 2, is $330. Yep. and Which is just, for that watch, uh, it's, the, it's very light. It's 29 grams. Um, we've spoken about, yeah, the battery life, and it's just got so many features on it. Um, you know, you've got your running, your cycling, your swimming, your cardio, and there's also now a strength mode, yep. um, which so it covers multiple sports. Um, yeah, and the heart rate, it's obviously, it's got, it's got a, a barometer on it, 
it's got a compass, it's got thermometer, uh, the heart rate's really accurate, and um, yeah, it's just one of those watches that just yeah has everything on it. And for, uh, I think value for money, um, you can't go past it. Um, it's got they're basically it's constantly evolving to the brand and you know with updates and features on a lot of the watches um i think yours they've introduced it's the uh, it's a track running mode so basically it allows you to select your lane and basically it uses algorithms to sync and with the gps so that you get just around the 400 meter track it's just so accurate yeah, uh, I'm really impressed. I'd recommend it to anyone. It's good value for money. So exactly, yeah. Is is three thirty the running matters price? Three thirty with ten percent off. Oh, nice. Ten percent off that. So look, it's that's yeah, really good. It's got two bands. You got a silicon, or you can get a nylon band with them. So obviously, the nylon band's better for you know summer when it is sweaty. Yep. Um, some people you can buy replacement bands with them where they just clip off and clip on um, and their customer service if you've got any problems with it is second to none yeah very easy or you just bring it back to where for us where we bought it from and then we'll, we'll deal with it for you excellent and so Renala's open you're doing click and collect how are, how are people placing orders uh, they're either going to our online store obviously we can't have everything online um yeah uh sort of it's very hard to put all the little knick-knacky things on there um so if you're having trouble with finding stock or whatever online you just um give us a buzz at the shop we're open nine till three uh, monday to saturday and we can just help you process it over the phone and then either get it out to you uh through postage or we can deliver it personally within the shire so which we've been doing a lot of. So it's, it's great that, yeah, local people have been supporting us and we've been supporting them back. So it's it's keeping us ticking along. Excellent. Well, that's great. And, and the listeners have got a 10% discount, so I'm sure... They have too. Yep. And, yeah, and obviously, yeah, Chorus, as I spoke to you earlier on about um, they've got a couple of new, if you're after something a little bit more advanced... Uh, Obviously, we all know uh, the marathon record holder, Elliot Kipchoki, is one of the ambassadors for, for Chorus. And um, he's just released, they've released a couple of new styles this week, uh, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, it's all happening. He'd be a good person to endorse a product. Oh, couldn't, uh, couldn't think of anyone better. <laughs> Absolutely. Sean, thank you very much for your time. And no um, I appreciate the review. That was awesome. I will we'll catch up when um, things go back to normal soon. Oh, fingers crossed. All right. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. See Bye-bye. Bye. And we're back. Uh, on a lighter note, uh, Pat, tell us um, how quick did it take you to recover after your event and when was your first beer? was my first beer um i think physically it was it was a couple of days there was a lot of um a lot of proper hydrating going into it the first day or so um there was nothing i wanted more than to go back and and have a few beers to kind of just you know get get the race off my mind but um but no definitely a couple of days to to sort of make sure the body was okay and, and 
and everything. Um, you know, physically it was a very, you know, obviously a very draining effort for me. Um, I had a few people ask me if I was, you know, beat up from falling down. My response was just, well, I wasn't running that fast when I fell, so it didn't actually, <laughs> didn't actually hurt that bad. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, physically I think it was, it was a pretty easy recovery. Um, mentally more so. I'd, I'd just seen that footage a few too many times and the, and the whole um, the whole ordeal of the 40 to 45 minutes afterwards where I was, you know, in a, in a sort of medical room getting taken care of in that regard was, was kind of scarring. So that's still, you know, that's still something that um, we're processing a bit. But, um, but no, we, we had a, I think there were a couple of beers on the, on the last couple of nights uh, in the village and then um, I was greeted in my quarantine room to a to a six pack of four X from my from my cousin, so felt <laughs> felt like home again, which was good. Um, but yeah, no, I've definitely I've definitely had a few beers um, since just to you know just to kind of relax and, and get get a bit more in in break mode um, and just more mentally reset than anything. Unreal. Nice. Sounds good. Mate, what's it like to be uh, with a fiancé who can just about towel you up in the 800 metres? Mate, it's uh, it's humbling. I'll tell you where she really towels me up is in the swimming pool. <laughs> um, so our, right before we started dating, I was, I was a, little, a little beat up, a um, little beat up injury-wise, and um, I knew she she had sort of access to the the Nova swimming pool and so I I texted her sort of asking if she wanted to I knew she did some swimming sessions as well so I was like oh do you want to you know I got to do a pool session do you want to do it together maybe you know great chat I'm throwing throwing all the lines out there (laughs) (laughs) every every great love story starts in the swimming pool um but yeah, so I was in my head. I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'll go. Maybe I'll impress her a bit that I can swim. I'm a five k, ten k runner. She's probably not expecting that. And um, so we're swimming some laps, and just sort of warming up, or whatever. And then um, we're both very competitive. So she was like, oh, I'll, I'll race. You know, hundred hundred IM, so twenty five of each lap of each uh, stroke. No, it's like <laughs> easy. He's, I was like, no dramas. I get to basically, I get to the end of the IM. I'm absolutely gassed. And she's got her cap off. She's got her goals off. Just like, looks like she could, like, hasn't even blown out a candle. <laughs> and I go to her and I'm like, you only did two laps. There's no way. She's like, no, I did all four laps. Uh, she beat me by at least at least 20 metres in a 100-metre <laughs> swimming race. <laughs> and come on, you coming into this, I'm thinking I'm coming into this being like, this is going to be, this is going to be my moment to impress her. <laughs> and I am coming out looking absolutely terrible. So that's just, so I haven't challenged her in the pool since. Um, I know I never will be able to challenge her in the pool, so that's that's more so where um, I'm very humbled humbled in my relationship is knowing that at any point in time she could drop the hammer on me um, <laughs> in that regard. And it completely changed the dynamic of the relationship forever more, mate. Yeah, so good choice, good choice. Definitely did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Like, how hard was it to not have her at the games with you? Definitely difficult. Um, yeah, I think that was part of being in the medical room after the race was was really hard knowing that, you know, she was the one person you want to see after something like that. I mean, she's the one person I want to see regardless, like whether it goes well or whether it goes poorly. Um, but I think especially when it goes poorly, they're the people you really appreciate being there. Um, and so knowing that, you know, not only would I not be able to see her that night, but, um, you know, given I'm, I'm back in Australia now because of I got to sort my visa out. So it was kind of clicking to me that, shit, I'm probably not going to see her for a month. Um, and that was really hard, like, because that's, that's the person that's been through all, all the highs and lows of not only, you know, not only the last year, but the whole process in, in getting to this point. Um, you know, nobody knows me better than she does. Nobody knows what else is, you know, what's really gone into this um, as much as she does. So that's the person you want to be able to share both both positive and negative experiences with and, and to not have her there um, was really, you know, really hard to, to sort of process. And, um, but also, you know, really hard for her. I and mean, she's sitting at home on the couch and doesn't know what's happened to me. Um, it's also the US coverage, so they're not focusing on Australian athletes. So I'm there at the bell and then a minute 45 later, I'm coming across the line with my hands sort of up up around here and it's um you know definitely not not a site that she she wanted to see so um yeah no it's it was definitely hard and it's I think the last couple of weeks she's been you know dealing with my bullshit and going to trying to process it and having days where I'm you know I'm like oh yeah I'm gonna get back out there and then the next day being like no I'm quitting <laughs> um so it's it's you know it's something like that where that's a lot easier to to go through and also a lot easier I'm sure for her to handle um, when we're in person. But um, yeah, no, she's been fantastic at, at being you know my support system and my rock as far as all of this goes, and um, has definitely been making sure I've been seeing the the more positive and, and optimistic side of things coming out of it. Unreal. That's great to hear. Mate, speaking of, I guess, the fluctuation in psychology, you're stuck in quarantine for two weeks. You're a bloke who usually runs, you know, once or probably twice every day. How are you you're handling that, um, that isolation in psychology? Mate, we are getting creative. Um, so I think we, we weren't able to get any electronic um, sort of training like treadmills or rowing machines or bikes or anything like that um, that were plugged in just because of the, like they'd have to recircuit the whole place or we'd be like, given, given a power outage to half of, half of the CBD. So, um, yeah, so we've got creative. I've got my sister to drop off a skipping rope. Um, so I've been channeling my inner boxer with that stuff. Um, one of the... Um, one of the physios or massage therapists on the Athletics Australia roster has been doing these Zoom classes each day. Um, did Pilates for the first time in about seven years and realised why I hadn't done it in seven years. Um, so that's been, you know, little things like that that have been, it's been fun to do something different. Um, but, yeah, doing that, um, 
actually been working with our with the sports psych here, um, Jonah Oliver, a little bit to to try and sort of like we were talking about before to figure out that that mental aspect of it and and figure out how best to use that that sort of mentality of being able to push yourself beyond um, beyond your limitations in that regard. So um, that's been really beneficial for me. And then um, you know trying not to not to eat because I'm bored um that's always a challenge uh but yeah it's it's definitely been definitely been a different experience but one I think I'm, I'm doing okay with um yeah I'm not I'm not too bad on my own I feel like I feel like that's a situation I'm pretty comfortable with so so we've been managing well it's the gift of the longest it's runner used a long period of time <laughs> on your own mate <laughs> it really is, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I'll appreciate some company a bit more when I get out of here. But, uh, but we'll see how we go, mate. I've got uh, just just one more interesting uh, listener question. It's coming from the half wheeler. He wants to know: Have you ever forgiven Stu McSween for drafting off you for nine k's at Zadapek <laughs> and then chesting you over the line? Did he at least share his prize money with you? Oh, uh, did he say how far did he say nine k? Nine k. Well. It's close, probably close to nine and a half. But <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I'll, I'll admit I was definitely a little salty about it for a while. But um, mate, that's racing. I mean, it's an Australian championship, and and Stewie was doing what he what he had to do to to win that race. And um, you know, we've all been there and and had those had those sort of races. And it wouldn't have, you know, I'm. I look back on it a number of times and if he had, you know, gone to the front and taken a couple of the laps, I'm not sure whether I would have let him. I feel like I probably would have surged and tried to tried to keep the lead or something like that, just as far as my race plan went. So um yeah, no, I definitely it's been amazing to watch him race this last these last two years. I feel like um yeah, basically since since that race, I feel like every race I've seen him in, he's just gone to the front and pushed it. Um, and it's been amazing to watch. And, and you know, he's um, really sort of made me, given me some inspiration to, to keep going and, and drive forward with that. But, uh, but yeah, I would say initially, initially very salty. <laughs> but, no, we've come out of it well. And, and um, yeah, I would say that was a little... I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say that was a little extra drive the last 100 metres in December of 2020 um, <laughs> to try, try and nab that time. But, um, yeah, no, it's um, – no. At, at the end of the day, we've, we've come to come to terms with it and it's it's been a, a good relationship since. Unreal. It's great to see you guys all pushing each other on from the armchair. It's a fantastic time in Australian middle distance and distance running. Uh, how, how long till you're out of quarantine and, and back to the States, mate? Um, it's a good question. I mean, ideally I'd be out, I think we get out of here on the 24th or 25th um, of August. So, you know, initially the plan was go down, do my visa interview, um, kind of just in a day trip and then have that turnaround be about a week before heading back. But, um, you know, with the recent state border restrictions and everything that's that's something that i will have to keep a close eye on um so it may not be 
may not be until closer to sort of end of first week of September that I'll be back rather than the first or the second. But mm-hmm. uh, keep my fingers crossed that we can we can make it make the turnaround happen pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, I'll be getting back there as soon as as soon as I can. Really, um, and yeah, then get take a little breather and get going for for Eugene next year. Okay. Well, fingers are crossed firmly for you to get out of there quickly. I'm glad you haven't uh, completely lost your mind yet. You're doing quite well. <laughs> well. We'll see how you feel about that when you look back on this uh, back on this podcast. There might be a few things where you thought, "Oh, yeah, he's got a screw loose there," but <laughs> it makes for good listening, regardless. <laughs> <laughs> you're in a safe place it's fine <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mate, thanks so much for your time on the podcast been unreal to chat and congratulations on your campaign uh incredible efforts all around and good luck for the yeah for the next few years and then on to bigger and longer things in la <laughs> <laughs> that's it no thanks fellas appreciate the time no worries thanks pat thanks see pat. cheers easy see you fellas Yeah.